always have fun. And he preaches too. With, <laughs> with Jim Brown. We have a great time, let me tell you. And Jim, I'm going to put this music right over here, just if you know, when you need that in a minute. It's good to be in the house of God, and folks, I, it's good to be back here. You know, we are living today in such a difficult, difficult world. So much is happening. So many things are going on. I don't have to tell you folks this. You read the newspapers. You hear it. You watch it. You hear it on the radio. You watch it on the television. You know what's happening in this world. And we come into this place, into this house, into this safe haven from a week where we literally battle Satan. That's exactly what the scripture said, folks. You and I are in a spiritual battle. And that's a constant battle for the child of God. The closer you are to the Lord, the matter you make the devil and the harder it becomes to serve the Lord because the devil's on your coattails. And he wants to take you and to take your, what your heart is doing and to be uplifted, to be positive, to be joyful. And he wants to pull little things in your life down that are little buttons. He knows how to push with you. And then when he pushes those buttons, the devil can pull you down from X amount of level. And by the time you get together with God's people, you've had, as Jim said, and we and we all have said, just a rough, rough week. Satan is bombarding the children of God more today than I believe I have ever seen in my 65 years of life on this earth. It's difficult days, there is no doubt. But then, folks, I go back and I look the Jews. And I look when the temple of Solomon was destroyed. Matter of fact, in 597, Nebuchadnezzar the king... Wow, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, our modern-day Iraq. Nebuchadnezzar was probably one of the most evil and one of the worst leaders in terms of military leadership around. He was a military genius, but his problem was is that he gloated over his abilities to conquer. He wanted to destroy. He wanted to take out, and he especially wanted Jerusalem. And God's people in Jerusalem. In 722, the northern kingdom of Israel had come to an end. It was destroyed by the Assyrians. And now it's 597 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar marched on the city of Jerusalem, taking the Jews captive. Some of them in 597. Not all of them, but some of them. But 11 years later, The Bible said that one day that temple and everything would be completely destroyed. Every stone would be gone. And that happened in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem and wiped out the city and destroyed the temple. He came in with a vengeance. He came in to annihilate not only the city but the people. And he took the remaining Jews that he hadn't taken in 597. He took the rest of them, 586, into captivity in Babylon Almost 900 miles to the northeast of Jerusalem. Now, folks, let's just sit on that for just a second. In our comfortable houses, in our heat and our air conditioning, in our food when we want it, and the luxuries of being able to go to bed, go to sleep in a bed at night, and you could go on and on and on. These people were now uprooted from where they have lived taken out completely, and as a result, they're put in this God-forsaken 
area called Babylon in captivity. They were not there to live nice. This had happened before to the Jewish people. They had been in bondage in Egypt. Now Nebuchadnezzar has taken them out. But what if that happened, y'all, to me and you? What if we were taken out of our homes, all of us, and uprooted, and the city of Atlanta, the state of Georgia, was simply in the United States, whatever, and you and I were either flown or boated to some God-forsaken country whereby we are now separated from family, we're in a situation where we are in captivity, what would you think? Would you think God had deserted you? Would you think God had just simply given up on you? Or would you begin saying, Lord, where are you? The Jews knew about that. They did that when Moses had been on the mountain less than 40 days. And when he came down from the mountain, what were they doing? They were worshiping an idol that they had built together, a golden calf. Didn't take long then. It doesn't take long for even... Dedicated Christian people so much of the time can begin to ask those questions. Well, what's that say to me and you? That's where we are in our scripture this morning. I'm in Isaiah chapter 41, verses 17 through 20. And I want to tell you the story of what the Jews were saying to God, what were happening under the title trust. Under just a simple word, trust. Because the Jewish people were confronted that the only thing they had left to do was to trust God. If you've never been brought to that one day in your life, God will bring you to that point where you can only trust God. I've been with a lot of you in this room. And I know you've been to that situation where you can only trust God. I think of the name Isaiah. It means God is, Yahweh is, salvation. His message to the people is that God forgives sin and will restore his people. God desires fellowship. When the tent of meeting and the tabernacle and later the temple, as we know, the, the temple mount itself, when God created and brought all that, he did it for one reason, so he could be with his people, so he could bring salvation to his people. That's what God has plan before the foundation of the world, but yet now God's people have been uprooted. God's people has been exiled, even in the United States where we are. We are in some respects exiled due to the sinful nature of where we are, due to the stuff that's going on. Because in our day and time, so many are now are, are afraid to go or be in any place for fear in the last few weeks of someone on a mass shooting or something happened. I, I'm just blown away. And so the Jews, by Isaiah, write these words based on their captivity, and they write it to God. I want you to listen to this. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 17. The poor and needy seek water. But there is none. Their tongues are parts with thirst. I, Yahweh, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. And church, listen to these words. No matter what you're facing when you come into this room, no matter what this country's facing, Jim said it right a minute ago, God's going to win this picture. 
The victory is going to be his. There is no doubt. And that first 17 alone shows that. Look at verse 18. God says, I'm going to open the rivers on the barren heights and the springs in the middle of the plains. I will turn desert into a pool of water and dry land into the springs of water. I will plant cedars in the desert, acacias, myrtle, and olive trees. I will put juniper trees in the desert. Elms and cypress trees will now grow together so that all may see and know and consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created this. Folks, I know we've not been exiled by a king like the Jews, but due to sin, what we've seen alone in recent weeks in New York and the terror attack killing eight people, seriously wounding 11 others just blocks from the 911 memorial in West Manhattan. We read and we've heard and we know of the mass killings in California while 22,000 people gathered to attend a country music concert in Las Vegas. And on October the 1st, 2017, we found out that 59 were found dead and over 527 were injured, some seriously. From a gunman on the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Hotel, firing all across shotgun style to destroy and kill people. Today we're hearing less and less of the good news in our society where people are actually helping one another and loving one another and living such lifestyles of servanthood and humility. No, we're not in a physical prison. But I can assure you, because of sin, we're in exile. The Jews faced it by Nebuchadnezzar. They needed encouragement and hope. Everything they had had been uprooted and taken away. And God was about to share with them some of the most exciting news those Jews in captivity could hear. And folks, I believe this morning God has that same exciting news for you and me. The battle is not over. And the battle belongs to God. Amen? Amen. The three promises that God makes to the Jewish people. There are three promises that God makes to the believers at Olive Springs campus right now, this day. And there are three that I hope if you don't write them down, you write them down in your brain because they're strict and straight from these verses in Isaiah 41. Here's the first bit of good news. The first thing, don't you ever forget when it comes to trusting God, God will never forsake his child, period. Whatever you face, whatever you go through, whatever health difficulty, whatever bereavement you face, whatever you face, don't you ever forget God will never forsake you. Bible says the poor and needy seek water. But there is none. Their tongues are parched, the Holman Christian Standard Version says. With thirst, I, Yahweh, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake him. The word for parched is the Hebrew word nasha, which literally means to dry up, to thirst beyond 
anything imaginable. So when that scripture says they're parched with thirst, it is beyond dry mouth. It is beyond the very fact. You've had those times where you've been out working in the yard. You've been sweating and tired, and you come back in, and the one thing you want is a cool drink of water. Well, take that about a million times farther in that direction, and you'll understand what that word nashoth means in Hebrew. It means parts to the point of simply unimaginable. I believe the Jews were at that point. Taken up for everything. Have you and I come to that point, though it seems that the spiritual around around us has become dry and that God may seem silent? Don't you and don't ever forget God will never forsake you. God will show up. And that's where you and I must incorporate the title of this message, Trust. Now what I'm telling you to do is hard, especially if you have a control issue. The bottom line is that the hardest thing for the human to give up control of is to give up something towards someone else. But if we're going to trust God, we are biblically commanded to give it up to God, then that is simply a must when it comes to trusting God. You and I can't see the complete picture. Remember the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. We see in a glass dimly. In a, it's not, not like we should see. It's blurred right now. But one day, one day, like the song says, we're going to see the Lord face to face. We're going to be with him in heaven. Don't ever forget, God will never forsake his child. Last week I began looking at some statements of different people, and, uh, and, I, and I found one that really has been listed as anonymous, but what it said and, and the address pretty well hit the nail on the head of this first promise. One man was defining trust. The Bible said, I mean, the, the people said that he got his Bible, and, and he stood up in the congregation, an older, older gentleman in his late 80s, early 90s perhaps. And here's what he said when he said, what is trust? And he said he is first and last, the beginning and the end. He's the keeper of creation and creator of all. He's the architect of the universe and the manager of all times. He's always one. He's always is. He always will be. He's unmoved. He's unchanged. He's undefeated. He's never undone. He was bruised and he was brought. But he brought healing. He was pierced and eased pain. He was persecuted and brought freedom. He was dead and brought back to life. He is risen and brings power. He reigns and he brings peace. The old man continued. He said the world couldn't understand him. The armies can't defeat him. The schools can't explain him, and the leaders can't ignore him. Herod couldn't even kill him. The Pharisees couldn't confuse him, and the people couldn't hold him. Nero couldn't crush him. Hitler could not silence him. The New Age cannot replace him. And the talk show host can't explain him away. He is light, love, longevity, and Lord. He's goodness, kindness, gentleness. He's God. That's why I trust him. Amen. And the old guy didn't stop then. That was enough. Mm -hmm. He stood up and he said he's holy and righteous and mighty and powerful and pure. 
His ways are right. His word's eternal. His will is unchanging and his mind is on me. You see, this man, he is my redeemer. He is my God. He is my savior. He is my guide. He is my peace. He is my joy. He's my comfort and my Lord. And he rules my life and I serve him because I love him. I trust God. Amen. Come on. The people in the church thought he was about ready to sit down. Not so. And if that doesn't seem to impress you, he stood up and he says, let me try this on for sight. I wish I'd have been there to hear this. His goal is a relationship with me. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. He will never mislead me. He will never forget me. He will never overlook me. He will never cancel my appointment in his appointment book. When I fall, he's going to lift me up. When I confess failure, he's going to forgive me. When I'm weak, he is strong. When I'm lost, he is the way. When I'm hurt, he heals me. And when I'm broken, he mends me. When I face persecution, he shields me. And when I face problems, he comforts me. He provides for me. Even when when I face death, he will carry me home. And then he closed out everything he said because he simply said, this is what trust is. He's everything to everybody, every time and every way. He's God. He's faithful. I am his, and he is mine. My Father in heaven can whip the father of this world. So if you're wondering why I feel so secure, if you're wondering why I can trust God implicitly, then understand this. He said it. That settles it. God is in control. I am on his side, and that means all is well with my soul. I trust God. Amen. Amen. Now, folks, God won't leave you. Amen. He would not leave the children of Israel, his children in Babylon. Don't ever forget. Trust God. He will never forsake his child. Here's the second one. That's good enough. We'd go home on that one. I, yeah, I'm telling you. Here's the second one. But there are two more. I've got to tell you that. It's found in verse 18. And the second one is this. Don't you ever forget that God will provide life-giving miracles for his child. God will provide life-giving miracles for his child. Look at verse 18. I will open rivers on the barren heights, springs in the middle of the plains. I will turn the desert, get this, into a pool of water. Can you imagine? And dry land into springs of water. This is God speaking here. These are all life-giving miracles. Remember the context of the verses. The children of God from Judah have now been exiled to Babylon. Their homes are gone. Everything is gone. God is saying to the believer that as he trusts in him, our Lord will cause water to show up in places where there can be no water. And he will do it in abundance. He will do the impossible. In the Bible, water is a symbol of life and death. Life because man cannot live without water, and death because you and I can't breathe underwater. In this case, our Lord's promise to the believer is that he is going to give God's people, his people, life-giving water. And he will give that water even in the place where it should not be. Desolate, desert, impossible. And then if you go there, my understanding is if you go to these places in the Middle East, water is very, very scarce. We don't understand dry compared to what's there. 
And I want you to understand something else. God providing water simply is in the creative act of God. It comes from the very mouth of God. The word wilderness is translated desert, permanent, dry land, no water. And the Lord God said, if you trust me, I will perform an incredible miracle. Water, life-giving water, will show up in places where it has never been. God's taking care of his people. He will miraculously provide them with life-giving water. But see, what happens is this. We get in what I call a giving up time where we've done all we think we can do. We tend to throw in the title and give up. But God expects exactly the opposite. To trust God as the word of God says means that he will show up despite what even this world thinks. And when he does show up, the perfect will happen and he will perform and do for his children life-giving miracles. It may not be in your time. It may not be in the time we think God ought to be. But it's going to be happening in God's perfect time. The Jews at that moment could have given up completely. They could have said, I've had it. And many times they've turned their back on God. How many times, too, have we wanted and done that? But God's not going to forsake you as a believer. And believe me, more than ever, God's going to take care of you. Miracles reside In the house of trusting God. Let me say that again. Miracles reside in the house of trusting God. How do miracles happen? Due to complete trust. And folks, I'm such a failure at that kind of trust. But how many miracles do we need in our lives? Then we must commit our life to trust the Lord completely and to allow Him to work by providing these life-giving miracles, which He will. My problem is I get too involved to the point I get we're in God's way. My prayer continues to be, and over these last 10, 20 years, God has teached me, continues to teach me, that I simply must stay out of the way. Let me tell you a story, a true story, of a little girl by the name of Tess. She was eight years old. And one day she heard her mom and dad talking in a very serious, somber tone about their little brother, Andrew. Tess didn't understand everything that they were saying, but she got the gist of what they were talking about. Her little brother was very, very sick, and they were completely out of money, and they would have to move out of their house and move into a small apartment because mom and dad didn't have enough money for the doctor bills to pay the house payment or anything else. And on top of that, the surgery was very expensive, and only surgery, they said, could save little Andrew. And they could not find anyone to lend them the money. So just then, Tess heard her dad say to her tearful mother, Only a miracle can save Andrew now. Well, Tess ran to her room. She pulled out a glass jelly jar from its hiding place in her closet. She poured out all the change on the floor, and she counted it very carefully. Then she put the change back in the jar and put the jar under her own arm, slipped out of the back door and ran down to the, then was called, you remember this, the old Rexall drugstore. It's about six blocks away. 
The pharmacist there was talking to a, a man very intently, and at first glance she didn't, or he didn't notice Tess standing there, and she waited patiently and then dramatically cleared her throat, trying to get his attention. And finally, Tess got his attention by taking a quarter out of her jelly jar and tapping it on the glass. That's all it took was the little quarter. The pharmacist noticed her, and he said, just a minute, I'm talking to my brother from Chicago who I haven't seen for ages. And she says, well, said Tess, I want to talk to you about my brother. You see, sir, he's really sick. And I want to buy a miracle. His name is Andrew, and he has something growing inside his head. And my daddy says only a miracle can save him. So how much does a miracle cost? I have the money to pay for it. With all the confidence in the world, she says, I have saved. And if it isn't enough, I'll get the rest. You just tell me how much a miracle costs. The pharmacist's brother was a well-dressed man. He stooped down and he asked Tess, he says, what kind of miracle does your brother need? Tess says, well, I really don't know. But then she replied with her eyes welling up with tears, I just know he's really sick. And Mommy says he needs an operation, but my parents can't pay for it. And I want to use the money to pay for my brother's surgery. So the, the pharmacist says, how much money do you have? One dollar and eleven cents. An old doctor says, well, you're in luck. The man said, one dollar and eleven cents is the exact price of a miracle. And with that offer, he took hold of her other meeting and said, mitten. And he says, now, sweetheart, you take me to where your little brother lives. I want to meet your parents and I want to meet your little brother. Let's see if I have the kind of miracle that you need. So that well-dressed man from Chicago who had been talking to the pharmacist happened to be Dr. Carlton Armstrong, who happened to be one of the world's noted neurosurgeons. The operation he did on Andrew was successful successful and done without charge, and it wasn't long until Andrew was home again and doing well. Tess's mom and dad were grateful. They were actually talking one night about the chain of events that had saved Andrew's life. That surgery, her mom said, was a real miracle, and she said, I just wonder how much it would have cost to give that miracle. Tess says, I know exactly how much it would have cost. It was $1.11. And it was $1.11 worth of miracle of an experienced, incredible neurosurgeon, but a God of this universe whom they trusted, who provided life-giving miracles in a time of need. Folks, we don't know the minute, the second, the hour, and all that, but we do know one thing. We know God's going to show up. Amen. Amen. And he will take you. Here's the third and final thing. It's found in verse 19. Verse 19 says like this. I will plant cedars in the desert, acacias, myrtles, and olive trees. I will put juniper trees in the desert, elms, and cypress together. I love the New Living Translation of this. It says, I will plant trees in the barren desert. I will plant trees in the barren desert. And then he names them cedar, acacia, myrtle, olive, cypress, fir, and pine. The third thing is this. God will not only give life-giving miracles. God will provide life-giving protection and care for his child. 
Once again, the Lord says he's going to cause the impossible to come become possible. Not only will our Lord provide life-giving miracles, he will also provide that life-giving protection and care. In the previous verse, water was supplied by God in places where there would be no water, even in the high places, which were completely dry. And then, but I want, I want to show you real quickly these trees and why the specific trees were used in this verse. Rather than mainly sand, this area was composed largely of a rocky wasteland. And the area that Isaiah is referring to is probably that area which lay on the eastern slopes of the Judean mountains in the shadow of rain and it was heading toward down the Dead Sea. In other words, dry, rocky, and unable to grow anything. But yet God says, you know, I'm going to do something that's going to blow you away. First, I'm going to plant cedars. Cedar was a reddish wood, cone-shaped tree, which had an aromatic odor and it was very offensive to insects. The tree itself is extremely durable. Some cedars were thought to be 200 years old and ranged in heights up to 70 feet with a girth around the base of the tree as large as 63 feet. The cedar tree always represented protection, covering. Strength. Wow. The acacia wood. The wood was used in making various parts of the Ark of the Covenant, as you know, in the wilderness. It's a slow-going, growing, and very strong tree. And when cut, the wood is very heavy and stout, as well as being resistant to decay. And the acacia is also used for perfume, for incense, and medicinal purposes to protect, to care for you physically. God knew what he was doing. The myrtle tree, its dark green scented leaves dictate a very starry white flowers and dark colored berries which can be eaten. The scent of the myrtle is considered to be better than that of a fully matured rose. And the foliage of the tree was used to make crowns for mobility of the day. The myrtle tree grows slowly into a very large tree. It's found growing on the hills of Jerusalem. When looked at from a distance, it it appears like a professionally sculptured tree, a tree that represents kingly, strong, stout, unmovable. You're beginning to get the picture of why these trees? He talks about the olive tree or the oil from the olive tree. The berries were used for the oil. The oil was food. It was a softening agent for skin, for medicinal treatment and anointing as well. It was also for the Jews required to be mixed with his first fruit offering. Again, dealing with the spiritual aspect of everything. So now God is going to physically take care of and spiritually prepare. And then in the Arabah, in the Hebrew, literally the desert, the most Lord said he's going to plant a cypress and a pine and a box tree. The cypress, the historical wood from the cypress tree, was used for timber for shipbuilding and copper, both vital commodities in the ancient world. In the east, most cemeteries are lined with cypress trees. The pine was used then as it is today in furniture and woodworking for making. But then the box tree, which is a form of a pine, it's based on the early Greek and Latin translation. The Hebrew word literally means to be straight, and it refers to the tall, majestic cypress tree in that day. 
Such wonders of nature reflect the greatness of God's creator and the fact that God will provide. God's going to take care of us physically. You see God's promise for his children. He's going to supply their every physical and mental and medicinal and spiritual need because he loves his people. What's our requirement? Trust. Trust God. Even when all the circumstances point to the fact that God is nowhere to be found, trust God, period. But why is God going to do all this? In conclusion, look at verse 20 with me. Here's why. So that all this world may see and know, consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, the Holy One of Israel. That all may see and know, they all may consider, and they all may understand. That's exactly what trust is all about. God wants the unbeliever to see the work of God through the believer. You and I are to do good works. Why? Because when we do good works under God, it proclaims to an unbelieving world that not only does God exist and loves, but that he cares and wants to be with his people. That's what God wants. That's what he wanted for the children of Israel. In the midst of what they thought was complete abandonment from God and that their nation, their world, had fallen completely apart, God wanted them to trust God even all that adversity was happening. And God says, I do this because I want what happens in your life to point people directly to Jesus Christ. We all complain a lot. That's us. That's who mankind is. But everything that we do in these three things that I've just, these three promises, you and I have such an incredible and uncanny ability to point someone to Jesus. So how's your trust on Well, scale from one to ten, and you don't say anything, just think about it. What's your trust level in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Years ago, I was studying this word in the language, both in Hebrew and Greek. And I really understood the word pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S in Greek, or pistuo in the Greek, which literally means I believe. And then I went back to the Hebrew and looked at both of them and they took and compared a, a word called hesed in the Hebrew, which is basically... Our New Testament word agape, God, oh, this is covenant love, and such because the Hebrew folks did not have a concept to understand faith. Reason being, it was fact. It was not up for discussion at all. But what's God want me, me and you? So as I looked at this, I, I, and in front of me in my notes, I simply wrote the word T-R-U-S-T on my desk. And for days, I'd come in and see T-R-U-S-T. And people would come in and in my office and they would think, trust. Why has he got trust written everywhere? About a month and a half or two months into doing that, because there was a sermon I was preaching here, not this one, another one, dealing with trust, using the, the same word. And I, I don't know, I just wanted, I wanted something, I wanted something from God that, would be easy to explain, easy to say, and maybe stick in people's mind and heart. I remember one 
weekday morning walking in in my office and sitting down and studying. And I, those days were planned out, or at least I did for me or tried to. And I remember sitting at my desk, and all of a sudden, I just took my pen and wrote these words. Take refuge under spiritual truth. Trust. The acrostic. And I was sitting there at my desk, and I'm thinking, well, this didn't come from my brain, that's for sure. It just was a God thing. And I wrote that down, and I wrote it today. Take refuge under spiritual truth. Isn't that what God is telling me and you to do? And isn't that the reason we have the three responses from God to the children who were in bondage and to you and me today? Folks, I don't know how to give you any better news. I am so glad that Jesus Christ loved me to take my sin on a cross. Every sin I would ever commit. And he will never leave me nor forsake me. Ever. And he's not going to leave you or forsake you. So whatever's going on, whatever's happening, whatever's taking place in your life, whatever's going on in this country, whatever's going on in this globe, God is still sovereign God. And he is on his throne. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we can completely, totally trust you no matter what. Father, thank you for just reminding us this morning of those three simple promises of God to your people. Lord, when we get discouraged, when Satan just really pulls on our coattails and he confronts us with he or the demons of hell on a daily, weekly basis. Maybe, Lord, this week we can go back to these three promises or go back to Isaiah 41 and just listen to that entire 41st chapter of how your people responded to what you said to them. Lord, thank you. I don't know about anybody else in this room, but I needed to hear these words. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word that is sharper than any two-edged sword that will pierce our heart very down to the center of the marrow of our bone. And, Lord, thank you. Convict us now. Your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Folks, songs very simple. Jesus is tenderly calling. Not going to do that. Which one are we doing? I write down something for the last song every You do. Time I try. I knew that. And you know what I'm going to do? And you had that? Yeah. Go ahead. I think that when you end the church service, everybody ought to be able to see that this is a happy thing. This right. is not a sad thing. People go out of church for the last thing they hear is a sad song. And uh, that's not what we're about. We're, we're Christians. We enjoy being Christians. We can have fun and be Christian. I have, I have a lot of fun. And fellas, y'all join me on this one. God is good all the time. He put a song of praise in this heart of mine. God is good all the time. Through the darkest night, His light will shine. God is good. God is good all the time. Sing that with me. 
Amen. God bless you, folks. Thank you.